This season of Black and White is brought to you by Flatiron Wealth Management. Led by my good friend Andrew Shepard, Flatiron Wealth Management is an independent wealth management firm that is committed to building generational wealth for their clients. By constantly optimizing and diversifying its investment strategies, Flatiron helps you influence the economic factors that you can and to prepare for the ones you can't. Visit flatironwealth.com for more information. Link in the podcast description. Hello, welcome back to Black and White, a rallying place where we come together to learn and hold everyone gently to account. A podcast for the ally in all of us. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. Today, I'm super excited to be having a conversation with my good friend, Gregory Lang. Gregory is one of those people that comes into your life that you find yourself lucky that it happened. Gregory and I met actually uh, through mutual friends and a gathering of people who came together to form a movement called Democracy House. Our efforts there is to bring people together to renew the principles of democracy and engage people in conversation. And we've really been at it for a few years, but I'll let Gregory tell a little bit more about that. But Gregory comes uh, just such an interesting person. He comes from uh, illustrious Canadian political families. He's uh, himself a talented uh, intellectual consultant in the innovation world. He's ran for politics himself as well, represented Canada at the Ultimate Frisbee Games, and much more. So, Gregory, welcome to Black and White. Thanks, Stephen. You know, I want to take a quick chance to say this in public, but I want to thank you for sharing your personal story as the context and background of your book while exploring like issues uh, of politics and realities of life today made it readable and uh, very real. Uh, so thanks for sharing with the world what most people would only tell their psychiatrist. Well, or, <laughs> or a bartender. <laughs> exactly. I exercise my my, uh, my demons, if you will. Uh, yeah, I guess my book came out February 1st. As you know, Gregory, it's been a bit of a whirlwind and in interviews and print, but it seems like it's making the impact. And of course, today, we're going to talk about some of the topics that I write in the book that I know you and I have discussed uh offline for for years now and uh, that we can share with our audience. So before we go on, I kind of went quickly through a little bit about you, but maybe you can share with the audience who you are and what you've been up to and what you're doing today and uh, and just tell us a little bit more about your, your background. Sure. Right now I'm retired. I was a consultant. Uh, I like to call myself a solutionist, not a consultant. Uh, the old saying that a consultant will borrow your watch to tell you the time, and I like to work <laughs> where I would teach people to fix their own watch. Worked in uh, renewable energy and startups, uh, emerging technologies, internet, things like that. Um, I was born to Otto Lang and uh, Adrian Lang, who had seven children. Uh, so I'm one of seven, third child, second son. You know, at about age two or three, I guess my dad first went into politics, uh, got elected in Saskatoon, Humboldt was the riding. Uh, in 68 uh, with the Trudeau government. So grew up surrounded by politics. Uh, it was always a conversation uh, in the house. Over the years, friends would come for dinner and would remark afterwards to me that we, we talk about politics and politicians as if they're family friends, because it really is part of our intimate lives. 
Just for those who are not here in Canada, your father really was at the table, a cabinet minister, with Trudeau Classic, right? Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who was their prime minister in the late 60s. For those of you know, those big Trudeau mania, really a consequential prime minister in Canada for decades. And your father was really at the seat of the table and one of the people that was transforming Canada. And your mother, who, as you just mentioned, was... Uh, responsible for seven children. She was doing more than that. And tell us a little bit more about her as well. In uh, political life, a politician doesn't spend a lot of time at home with the family. And my mother, you know, to keep the marriage going and to keep my father's career going, uh, joined him on the Hill. Uh, he was a cabinet minister, uh, you know, uh, justice, immigration, wheat board, transport. Did it all, but, really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh but my mother basically worked as an unpaid communications and media liaison uh, in his office for all the years that he was there. Uh, it was only later that spouses actually started to get a dollar a year. So she was a zero a year for, uh, <laughs> for that point. But uh, Talk about uh, pay equity issues. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, so she was she was busy doing that as well. Uh, we used to joke, uh, busy busy life. But we got to you know we, when we did see them, we saw a lot of them, and we we got included in conversations in living rooms, and you know with dignitaries and politicians, and discussing issues of the day. And you know even if shooed to bed, if it was an interesting conversation, we'd sneak down and sit on the stairs and listen longer, uh, and hear what they had to say. So that was always was fun. Just uh -huh. fascinating. And then if, if that wasn't enough, you know, change in family dynamics, and your mother uh, ended up meeting and marrying another cabinet minister in the federal government. So tell us about that. Yeah, well, I mean, my, one of my father's colleagues, uh, Donald McDonald, you know, I guess most famously defense minister, and then post-politics was the uh, chair of the what became called the McDonald Commission Report, which, among other things, recommended free trade with the United States. That was actually number two. Item one was free trade across Canada, which was never implemented. Uh, but free trade with the United which States. Is, which, I, I, which I still can't understand, by the way. Yeah, it's, a, it's a question, what we're doing with all these barriers between provinces. But my mom, uh, you know, obviously family, you know, family friends, uh, my dad and Donald to colleagues and uh, Ruth and my mom, uh, friends as well. And, you know, later on, uh, after Donald had left politics, my mother was, you know, around with the McDonald family. Um, and uh, while well, Ruth was ill, and at some point, Donald walked around the corner and she realized that uh, she was in love with the guy. So they were married and so inherited uh, Donald as a stepfather and his four daughters who were friends. I mean, we grew up together, saw each other. One of the daughters was in my older brother's class. You know, I was in a class with uh, one of one of the girls in his house. So it was very familiar right from the get-go, although, you know, always awkward with two families combining. <laughs> but we made it work. But the interesting part, and this is kind of your foundation, you know, that I know has inspired you and motivated you throughout your life in terms of service, that you were part of family of people that served their country politically and government and creating policy, trying to make Canada a better nation. And I tried to explain it to American friends. So I guess your families, your combined families are kind of, you know, one of the, I wouldn't say the Kennedys, but really kind of one of those foundational political families in the United States that through generations contribute and, and see that politics and civics is a way to contribute. Maybe tell me about what led to you being one of the founders of Democracy House here in Canada and some of the people involved and, and really why it's it's important, uh, especially today. Yeah, I mean, Democracy House was uh, definitely a, a, a sort of a, an opportunity for general beliefs I have about uh, 
politics and civic life and, and you know, interactions in a society. Without any real target, we sort of uh, had a meeting. Howard Brown actually brought us together. And very quickly in the in initial discussion, it was realized that the best path forward was to create something that was multipartisan. And uh, shortly thereafter, I think we evolved into understanding that really it was about restoring the respectful dialogue. And, you know, if you go back to my father's time in the House of Commons, uh, the cordial relationship uh, between members of the House across party lines, uh, they all respected each other. They had drinks together. They played golf together. Uh, they made fun of each other in the house. You know, one guy would send a note over to somebody speaking. Uh, the page would hand him a note saying his zipper was undone and he'd grab his crotch. And, you know, so they'd make fun of each other. Uh, everybody had a shared respect uh, in the House of Commons, I think more so in, in the public. And Democracy House sort of strives to reinforce that idea of respectfully listening and speak respectfully. And, uh, and that's what we're doing with our conversation series. And so it feeds well into that, that dynamic of service. I mean, if we're all thinking about each other, worrying about each other, then uh, we're all going to be better off. Well, that's what attracted me to be part of Democracy House. And I was motivated, I think, like you and many others, about the fact that it felt like democracy was under siege across the world. And of course, we went through the erosion of democratic principles, what it meant and what freedom means. And, and we see the discourse in the United States that's uh, devolved, if you will. We've seen uh, here in our own country just recently with the protests that turned into, some would say, a siege of our nation's capital. And of course, sadly, in Europe, we're seeing one nation attacking another to try and really stop democracy in its tracks through uh, through war. So, you know, I, I can't think of, of a more important thing than trying to get citizens engaged in the renewal of democracy and understand why we all need to be vigilant. Yeah, when I think about the tantrum protest in Ottawa, which turned into occupation, it's sort of obvious that there's a lack of education around civics. They seem to select one sentence out of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and, you know, scream it out from the rooftops out of context. Don't read the whole thing and put it in context and understand how rights operate. When it comes to the Ukraine, you know, in the face of a crazy man, we have people who are fighting and dying to save democracy. They want it so badly, they're willing to die for it. And I'd like to think that we could actually get to a place in Canada and in America and other sort of more peaceful places where we're actually fighting for it. We don't have to die for it if we actually fight for it on a regular basis. And it seems like people aren't anymore. People are getting a little lackadaisical and not understanding the value of it. So I hope we can, you know, sort of instill that in people. Well, we're going to switch gears here because you just said something about, you know, this is obviously a podcast, so can't see you, but I want to talk about the term white privilege and, you know, you're white Canadian and I remember in my many discussions with many white people in my community, my friends network, and when white privilege was brought up, they'd say, Stephen, what are you talking about? They go, you know, I come from modest means. I've worked hard all my life. Everything I have, I've worked hard for. I've built this business. And I say to them, no, no, no. What we're really talking about is white advantage. We're talking about the advantages that you have simply because of the whiteness of your skin and that black people, people of color and indigenous people for centuries and continuing today, the data reveals it in our systems, continue to be disadvantaged as a result of their race and culture. So I, I think it's fundamental to democracy. But tell me your thoughts about white privilege, white advantage, how words matter. And as a white Canadian and coming from the family and the background that you just shared with us, where do you sit in all of this? 
Well, I'm delighted that you frame it as white advantage over white privilege. Uh, even I started off with getting my back up, getting defensive uh, at the term, you know, privilege. Even though my father was a politician and a cabinet minister, he had been a professor at a university and then took a salary, which wasn't enough to barely keep seven kids in the house and all his travels uh, floating. And, uh, you know, it's not, not quite the advantage you think it is. And using the right term so as to actually engage in a conversation instead of getting people to be defensive and refuse to listen respectfully. And really, I mean, the, the opposite side of that coin of white advantage is non-white disadvantage, which is obviously what you're talking about. And, you know, if we look around and say, hey, there's non-white disadvantage out there, people will be like, yeah, that's easy, easy enough to agree to. And it's like, well, if you're white, you must have advantage because you're not suffering the non-white disadvantage. So I think it's, it's really crucial. And, uh, you know, it gets into sort of the the idea of understanding systemic racism and systemic inequality from the perspective of it is not a personal affront, it is not laying blame on the individual, that really we're talking about something that is broader than that, it's occurring around us, but we have a responsibility to deal with it, to confront it, to try and recognize it. And I think that's the hardest thing for me, is recognizing what is a product in my everyday life of my white advantage. Things happen, or more particularly, whole bunch of things don't happen to me that I can't just recognize unless I'm really looking hard to pay attention to. And I think back of George Floyd's murder and, you know, gave us all and me a lot of time to think about these issues. And, and it actually gave me the opportunity to ask questions that I wouldn't otherwise ask and to solicit answers that I think other people would not have otherwise given except for the context of that. And a good friend of mine who is a black lesbian, she described walking out of her door every morning, putting her hand on the doorknob and taking a deep breath, preparing herself for whatever was going to confront her that day in terms of racist or, you know, other discriminatory sort of attitude, behavior, et cetera. And that just, you know, it blows me away, trying to understand that that can exist in our society, that she lives across the street from me. Like, you know, we live in the same neighborhood. She's raising a family, and yet she's suffering that disadvantage. And obviously, my white advantage is I don't do that. There are racist people all over the world. There's racist people all over Canada. That's not really the big problem. The, the problem is the racism that's baked into the systems and institution. That's what people are calling for reform. So I guess my question to you, Gregory, is why do you think there's still such a such pushback or there seems to be some people that want to mix the two and are, are incapable of separating the fact that we're talking about individual racism, we're talking about systemic racism? Yeah, and making that distinction is hard. I present the data to them and say, look, it's in black and white. Like, what more do you need? Like, this is the outcome. And in terms of systemic racism, it is not something you can identify and measure as it's being set up. It's not something you can identify easily and measure as it's happening. Although if you work hard, you can try to start to see it. But really, it is an outcome measurement. It's of past. It's proof that it exists is after the fact. And so after the fact, you look at the data, you look at 
you know, rates of jail for blacks versus whites compared to the percentage of the population. You look at their career paths, you look at their education outcomes, you look at every metric you want, and there are outcomes that they suffer. They are doing worse for no reason. And even when you weed out the differences and look at sort of middle class, middle class, you still see these disadvantages. And uh, that's systemic racism or systemic outcomes of inequality. And so obviously there's something wrong. And, you know, the hardest thing for people to do is to separate themselves from personal blame, like it's your fault and, you know, you did something evil, actively did something evil. And it's not. It's collective. This term uh, microaggression, it's one that I struggle with as well because it can get people's backs up, you know, when you accuse somebody of using, you know, being microaggressive. And uh, there's, there's got to be a better term for it. I'll leave you to come up with it for your second book. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> The other problematic language is defunding the police. Right. When I think really, I, I'm not saying that some people don't actually believe that, that what needs to be done. But I think I think the majority of people who are, who are really talking about reform, not defunding. The most sensible minds that use the term, it's unfortunate they use the term because they're not talking about defunding the police. They're talking about upfunding the other social support services that should be there in place. Of exactly. Them. And they're sort of pretending that the money should come out of the police budget and into the you know, uh, social services budget, the health budget, the, you know, whatever else budgets. But really, you know, the, I think the rational approach, the, the small C conservative way to do it is you just build the budget of these parallel systems where they get dispatched for certain types of calls. They're present with the police at certain types of calls. They're alone at others. And once you prove that that works and then start reallocating the police resources where you need them, you might find that, hey, we don't need to spend as much on the police because now we've taken care of 90% of the problems that we have. But to start with the idea of just taking away the police force until you build the alternative is a little bit risky <laughs> and uh, scares people. <laughs> and, so, and, back, you know, fair enough. and back to your point about microaggressions, what do you find troublesome with that term? Basically, it's you know the collection of microaggressions, and they're you know thinking them of them not as active negative behaviors necessarily over time. They can be very active in terms of somebody can actually be racist and actually be you know expressing microaggressions. But to a large extent, more often than not, they're happening very subtly without people recognizing it. And it comes from sort of a history of film, a patriarchal society, a messaging model that we had, even the way we used to raise boys and girls. All of those things have fed into it. And the collection of them build up over time. And it's, you know, you drop sand in a pile and the more sand you drop, eventually you get a little bit of a mountain. And that's where you get systemic racism. So this collection of, you know, grains of sand of microaggressions actually becomes systemic racism or systemic inequality. And so that's the challenge with it. But again, the word is a little bit difficult for people to really appreciate and look past. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because I had a number of journalists ask me or characterize. So in my book, I talk about some of the challenges, the headwinds, as I call them, that I've experienced in my professional career. And I detail, you know, some different experiences. And, and that's when they say, oh, well, that's really a form of microaggression. Now, when it was happening to me, I never knew that word. All I knew was that I wasn't receiving the same amount of support or accolades or my work wasn't perceived as good or or compared to others and it was clear that you know I was at least at par if not better right so so I like I said I didn't call it microaggressions at the time I didn't even know that word but I knew that there was you know for a lack of a better word I was being disadvantaged in the way that my skills and and was being assessed right and then as you said over time that accumulates. And in my era, when I was starting my career, it was like, 
led me to say, you know what, I don't think I'm going to be successful here. The path to success is not going to be here. And so I took my own path, which all worked out. But so I resonate with that. It's something that's close to home. So I get it. Just on the same point, and we're just pivot a little bit, this defensiveness, this lack of full understanding about systemic racism and versus individual racism. One of the things that I speak of in my book is about this, it's called the mythology and race in Canada, right? And it's like a, a parlor game in this country to look at the United States and to go, you know, wow, so glad if, you know, black people really had it bad in the United States with slavery and Jim Crow and segregation. When in fact, as I detail in my book, we had all of that here, right? Slavery, legalized discrimination that was actually supported by government policy and courts and law enforcement, not only against Black people, but people of color and Indigenous people in this country. So how does that all fill in? I know we've talked about how Canada likes to lean in, oh, we're a great multicultural country, which we are in some ways. But why do you think we have this mythology from your perspective? Why do you think that still is today? Uh, first, first, there's that general idea that we all recall the past and the good old days, you know, like they're always the good old days. They're never the evil, bad days. And, uh, so we have that where we forget. Uh, my mother used to say that, you know, God was, is brilliant because, you know, it makes women, women forget how childbirth feels because otherwise they'd never have more than one child. Uh, you know, <laughs> and so they have more. And so a certain extent we're erasing things in order to, to move forward and continue to live with ourselves. It really is just sort of a, a failure of, not just teaching history, but really embracing our own history, personal as well as collectively. And, you know, you think about the Underground Railroad and the, the slaves escaping from the South and from the United States and coming up into Canada, and we're all proud of that. And yet these people had no easy life here. They were discriminated against. They struggled, you know. Uh, you know, Yeah, they weren't slaves anymore, but they weren't free-free. Of course you not. Know? Of course uh, not. They suffered. Yeah, and go to Nova yes. Scotia today, and there's still issues over land title for black people in Africaville who were moved and moved and moved and now can claim title to the home that their families lived in for 40 years, 50 years, except they don't have title. They don't have anything written down because they just, you know, they moved where they were told and pushed out after and pushed out. And, you know, so it, it still exists today in a very, very, you know, harsh way. And, you know, don't even get started on the indigenous situation in terms of our fundamental disrespect for uh, a people and a nation. In a lot of my research and stuff, one of the things that I came across was this idea that democracy Really, voting is the least important part of democracy. Democracy is about the leadership having confidence from the people it serves. And in that sense, indigenous nations all had forms of democracy. And I'm not just talking about the Confederacy in the United States of the Six Nations. I'm talking about each individual nation had a form of democracy. And we didn't yeah. recognize and respect that and didn't embrace it. Um, theirs is predicated on responsibility and an allocation of responsibility. Uh, ours seems to be mutating more and more towards the American model that's predicated on individual liberty as opposed to personal responsibility and shared well-being. We need to go back and sort of look at our personal experience through our lives of, you know, the racism that exists, the discrimination that exists, and through our national history and our cultural histories and recognize those things and, and really understand them. My wife and I put a public library box out in the front yard, uh, but it's dedicated to Indigenous authors and Indigenous history. And people borrow the books and bring them back. And just trying to give people access to books that 
aren't readily available. Surprising how many people we do get who come who also go out and search for these books and then donate them. But just trying to give that piece of history, you know, a chance to be shared in the neighborhood. And uh, so far, so good, we hope. I, you touch on some good points there. Well, in my book, I go through... We've whitewashed uh, the history of Canada for centuries, the nearly genocidal policies toward Indigenous people, which you touched on, everything from the terrible residential schools to the 60s scoops to how we use policing to control Indigenous people and government policy that essentially looked to exterminate Indigenous people across this land and, and to, as the policy went, kill the Indian and the child and other horrible things. The history of, of black people essentially untold. I mean, I went to high school in the 1980s, and I couldn't have told you one thing about black Canadians that I've learned in school, right? Not to mention not knowing anything about residential schools or the true history and contributions of black people, people of color, and indigenous people to the formation of this country. I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, Stephen, I just read your book. I didn't have any idea about this or about that. And, uh, and I'm going, great, now you know, right? So I think the next part of our conversation with them is that now what are we going to do about it now that you're more aware? So we'll talk about that when we come back. We're just going to take a quick break. Hey, everyone. If you've listened to season one of Black and White, you know that my amazing guests and I have often discussed the wealth gap issue that persists between the BIPOC and non-BIPOC communities. Disadvantage of opportunity caused in part by wealth inequalities is something I know firsthand as a black man who started out in life from challenging circumstances. More than 10 years ago, I turned to Andrew Shepard and his team at Flatiron Wealth Management to help me set a course for a better financial future for my family by setting tangible financial goals and putting in place informed investment strategies. At that time, Andrew and his team reviewed my needs, which included long-term planning for the eventual retirement I envisioned, and making sure we had a safety net in place in case things went wrong along the way. Most importantly, Andrew heard me when I told him that priority number one was to secure a better future for my kids, one which would see them have as many opportunities as possible. Through a collaborative process, the Flatiron team recommended a strategy for my kids, which included a savings plan, partly anchored in a governmental educational savings program, combined with a participatory insurance product that would allow my kids to have millions of dollars of life insurance coverage paid for in 20 years at the lowest cost possible. Surprising to me, this plan would also enable my kids to borrow from the insurance policy to pay for college, to put a down payment on a house, or to invest in a business. Key foundational pillars to building generational wealth. It's truly been an amazing 10 years with Flatiron. I've seen the direct benefit of their financial management services, positive forward momentum realized year after year. If you're in need of solid financial management advisory services, give Andrew and his team at Flatiron a call. You'll be happy you did. Hello, welcome back to Black and White. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. I'm joined by Gregory Lang. Gregory, We've covered a lot of ground, but we've got lots more to talk about here, and I'm excited to be uh, engaging with you, as always. So the other day, we were having uh, a beer, and we were talking about the U.S. and about systemic racism, and you said, Stephen, there's no systemic racism in the U.S., and I'm, and I'm looking at you like going, what's he talking about? 
maybe you can explain that a little bit more. Absolutely. I sort of take the attitude that uh, systemic racism is a product of subtleties and an accidental remnant. Um, you know, in Canada, it really is whatever efforts we made to eliminate racism, we made a little bit of effort and left stuff that sort of built over time and that became systemic racism still enduring. Whereas in the United States, to say it's systemic is giving them too much credit. You know, to me, it's a sociopolitical agenda that they're pursuing and that they've been pursuing. So after slavery, there was a moment where it looked like they were going to change gears. Uh, then moved into Jim Crow and, uh, you know, even their jailing system, the war on drugs, you know, you name it. it, it these are all sort of uh, intentional plots to uh, ensure that racism is alive and well and uh, their voting rights and, you know, how they allocate them and, you know, uh, how, how, the, how it's hard to vote uh, if so, you're a minority, so, so if you're a black is, minority especially. So this um, is important because so I want to be clear that I understand what you're saying, because we're seeing a lot of pushback with this whole critical race theory from the right, especially about saying that educators are teaching white kids that they they should feel bad for being white, and which is ridiculous, which is not what critical race theory means. But what I think you're saying is that inherently America is a racist country. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, their their systems and, and structures uh, have just been layered and layered. Every time they, they pretend to fix something that's systemic racism or overt racism, they replace it with something else that's uh, overt racism. Um, and, you know, the, you know, the gerrymandering for political partisan gains for political party gain is one thing, but then the, uh, you know, voting registration laws and, uh, restrictions and limitations and difficulties of getting out to vote when you live in a community, um, you know, they, they call themselves the, you know, greatest democracy in the world and they call themselves the leader of the free world and, you know, it's like, one, you're not a democracy. Unless somebody in a community can go and express their voice in the electoral process uh, equally with everyone else, then it's not a democracy. And so stop pretending. And, you know, the dream that the founding fathers had of the United States, I, to me, has never been realized. They've never let it actually uh, turn into the country and, and you know, what was what was designed and planned. And now they're destroying what they never realized, uh, going in the opposite direction with uh, hyper-partisanship and polarization. Um, you know, the sort of rise of white supremacists and things like that. Those aren't new. They didn't show up again. They've been around in the background and uh, they just were needed again to come to, the, come to the fore. And so we're seeing them on TV and on social media again. Uh, but they've been there the whole time. Well, it's interesting you say that because we are at a moment where in the United States, we're seeing huge pushback at the local and state level in terms of voting rights and uh, I think some have gone as far to say, you know, this is really a rollback to the gains that were made in the, in the 60s in terms of the Voting Rights Act that basically gave rights, finally, to black people to have their votes counted and not their votes suppressed. This is what I'm having difficulty wrapping my head around. So on one side, there's a global reckoning on race where it's clear that the awareness level across the world, in Canada, the United States has been raised. People are asking deeper questions, maybe having better reflections. Some are having awakenings of their own in regards to what they can say and do to bring about change. And of course, on the other side, we have a huge amounts of defensiveness and pushback to actually prevent that change to happen. So in the context of our overall conversation of democracy and systemic inequality and racism, like what's happening, Gregory? 
Well, the pushback, I mean, one, it will come from people who are just getting their back up because we're using the wrong terms and we're not explaining it properly. And I don't accuse individual Americans, all of them, of being racist. Some of them, are, no doubt, are, just like some Canadians are. But the system itself is set up as racist, and it's got system after system, layer after layer, that feeds into it. And the reason I don't say it's systemic racism is because, the same way that I wouldn't say that apartheid in South Africa, when that was going on, I wouldn't call that systemic racism. That's just racism. And so I make a distinction, and I'm trying, I'm trying to make a distinction. And uh, until, until America actually comes to a reckoning and recognizes that to be a democracy, to actually live the dream of their founding fathers, they have to give the vote to every single person, make it as accessible as possible, err on accessibility, not err on the worrying about every possible little thing that's never proven in data that's a problem. I mean, in Canada, you can go vote without ID. You get somebody who lives in the neighborhood to vouch for the fact that you live in the neighborhood, you get to cast a ballot. Why? Because it's a community thing. The community gets to make a decision about who represents them, so we go vote. We have our own challenges, I think, with democracy and our rights and equality rights. Um, so in Canada, we have a constitution that was actually um, really became um, real in 1982, <laughs> right? Which is not because really we were guided by the British North American Act from uh, from the United Kingdom. So in 1982, we got our constitution, but as part of our constitution, we got the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which laid out essentially the rights of individuals and the freedoms within our constitution. And at the core of those rights and freedoms were uh, minority protections in regards to language and religion and sexual orientation uh, and freedom of speech and so on. Since that time, we've seen the erosion of some of those principles by discriminatory laws. So maybe, Gregor, you can tell us a little bit more about why the Charter is so important and what's happening recently or over the decades, and especially recently, where we're seeing kind of a, a deterioration. Yeah, you're asking a lot of questions at once. I'm going to start with the Charter on Rights and Freedoms and, and sort of what it means and uh, maybe a little bit of how it works. I have to start with the idea that rights and freedoms uh, don't come from a piece of paper. They exist for every person, every, you know, natural human rights. And uh, in an active way, we actually give them to each other and get them from others. We don't, we don't hold them ourselves. We don't protect them for ourselves. Um, we shall be grateful uh, that someone is respecting our charter rights when we walk down the street and pass somebody and they choose not to stab us. Um, they're respecting our right to not be stabbed. And so they're giving us the right to walk peacefully by them as we're giving them the right to walk peacefully by them. Uh, so understanding that just because they're written down, it's important, uh, and there's a reason for it, which I'll move into, uh, but really rights are given back and forth between people and even our enemies, uh, among, you know, enemies sort of establish and guarantee rights. In terms of the guarantees in, in our Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, obviously there's fundamental freedoms, religion, thought, assembly and association, democratic rights, mobility rights, legal rights, equality rights, language rights, indigenous rights. And a lot of administrative stuff. <laughs> and uh, what does this do that, you know, what is this for? Why do we have this Charter of Rights and Freedoms? And really, it's designed to constrain the government from acting, uh, that they cannot uh, act infringing on those rights. And as we alluded to earlier, in terms of the tantrum protests in Ottawa, reading one right without reading the whole thing, the whole document. Yeah, it's not a buffet. You can't pick and choose. 
right? Which rights you decide to follow. You can't pick no. and choose. Yeah. And the, the, I mean, the first thing that they skip over is the most important, which is section one. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees rights and freedoms set out in it subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. And the funny thing is that one of the, th one of the rights that, you know, is limited, one of the first limits of rights is your rights versus my rights. <laughs> Just the natural conflict of we each have the same right and they come into conflict and so they're automatically limited. So there are natural limits to rights even at the get-go. And again, we're both not stabbing each other, so we should be celebrating. We should say thank you as we pass people on the street. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, the idea is that in a free and democratic society, you know, governments shouldn't be doing things without good reason and without explaining themselves and justifying it for the people and that our rights should be paramount. Now, you start working your way down in the charter and some of the sections, there's subsections, uh, you know, like inequality rights. There's a 15.2, which talks about uh, affirmative action programs. It basically makes an allowance for a violation of rights in order to correct a historic or obvious inequality. And so you can build back, but it's specific about what and why and then, you know, sort of what it's going to do in terms of fixing the problem. And, that, and I want to talk about that because we could go through the whole charter, but I think that that's a really important one because it touches on, on our overall conversation here. So one thing you just said about stopping the government from interfering in your individual rights, but also at the core of that is, I think, the essence that no one can be more equal than someone else. There's a famous George Orwell saying from, you know, Animal Farm, which is like, everyone is equal, but some are more equal than others, right? You cannot have that in a liberal democracy. And at its core, the charter is a protection of minority rights and equality rights. And we know uh, the province of Quebec here in Canada is not the only one that has attempted to make assaults on the charter. But I'll focus on the province of Quebec only because it's kind of interesting. So you just talked about the ability to have equity measures to rectify a past wrong. And I think we saw that in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in the province of Quebec in regards to the Quiet Revolution. And the need to have equity measures to ensure French Canadians, especially in the province of Quebec's rights were corrected and, and policies passed so that they would have more opportunity both in the public and private sector of society where they had been disadvantaged. And which is also very interesting because when we're thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement and the call for equity measures and the call for reform of systems, we're asking for the exact same thing. I never hear black people say, I want equality rights and I want them at the expense of other people's equality rights, right? Which you can't have in this country. Which brings me to Bill C-21, which I know is one of our favorite topics, Gregory. So this is a law uh, that was passed uh, in the province of Quebec uh, that was under the guise of protecting the, the secular state of the province of Quebec. But really, it's a discriminatory law that limits the religious freedom of individuals to wear their religious clothing in the way that they celebrate their religion through religious clothing and symbols, and as a result, prevents them from holding certain jobs in that province because of that religious clothing. And of course, it really um, targeted Muslim women who wear hijabs, specifically because of face coverings. So there's been a big fight at all levels. Tell us a little bit about how that fits into the charter and why, I know, I know your feelings about this, but why you think this is the kind of 
problem, a very serious problem in assault on democracy and our charter specifically. Yeah, and I'll build, you know, C21 is an act respecting the laicity of the state. And like you, I had a knee-jerk reaction of what a bunch of racists. And then so slowed down and some wisdom from my father said, okay, I must not understand. So I tried to explore it. You know, in terms of looking at the question, you know, I sort of realized that misdefined the term uh, state. And meanwhile, they're also misdefining the idea of systemic racism or systemic disadvantage. Well, in fact, the government of the province of Quebec refuses to acknowledge that systemic racism actually exists. Yeah, uh, we'll move into that. In a second. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, sort of, sort of trying to understand it. So they come at it, at it from a misunderstanding. And in order to, to enact this legislation, they preemptively applied the other weird thing in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is the notwithstanding clause. So section 33, which basically says that, you know, a whole bunch of sections of the Charter don't apply. Um, and I don't know if you imagine uh, you buy a dishwasher and it comes with a lifetime guarantee and here's a list of the things that are guaranteed, but in the bottom of the guarantee, it says we can cancel the guarantee at any time for any reason. Well, what kind of guarantee is that? <laughs> exactly. And, exactly. You know, so, like, how, how how much how much use is this written Charter of Rights and Freedoms when we have this piece? And and they put it in to protect themselves from the courts, and you know they knew full well that they were going to be violating individual rights. But really, I think that you know their misdefinition of the state is understanding that you know one the legislature isn't even the state. It's the product of Parliament. It's the product of the legislature that is the state. The people in the, in the legislature. They're partisan. The legislature, you know, the state is neutral. It's not partisan, but the, le the legislature is very partisan, and for good reason. It helps us organize who's on what team and how we get things done. Uh, you know, the agents, the the actors in society who work on behalf of implementing the state aren't the state. They're just the actors doing it. They're agents that just do this functional job for the state. And, you know, the players will change, et cetera. The state endures. And so it's a misunderstanding on their part in terms of just defining what's the state. And then in terms of secularity, I mean, you know, uh, to be secular, you have to be both not religious and not irreligious. Both have to be absent. And unfortunately, their legislation, C-21, is very irreligious. It requires their government to keep a list of what they declare to be expressions of religious faith worn by people. They have to keep a list. They have to enforce it. It is one of the most dangerous things in the world. And, you know, yeah, there's a time and a place where you can say, okay, uh, what somebody might wear as a religious symbol can be dangerous to their job. You know, a fireman wearing a turban, running into a burning fire, okay, that might be a problem because he's not wearing a fire hat. Well, so you say to the guy, like, okay, you need to wear a fire hat for this. What else can you wear? You know, and he can put something else on uh, in order to be a fireman. I'm not sure if there's any Muslim firemen, but... No, but we've accommodated that for our CMP office, right? All kinds of things. I read something the other day. The rights of the people cannot be left to the preferences of the majority, right? It's like the fundamental rights in the constitutions shouldn't be subject to the whims and preferences of the majority. Can you imagine? It's just like, oh, I'll get together, uh, all, you know, my white buddies get together and go, you know what, I think uh, today uh, we just feel that slavery wasn't a bad thing and we should all vote for it to come back, right? Of course, I'm being ridiculous, but that's the extreme you can get. Through the irony of Quebec uh, sort of following the whims of the majority or the perceived majority in Quebec uh, is what would happen if Canada did the same thing to Quebec? 
uh, well, you know, well, they'd, be, exact, they'd be done. Exactly. You know, and exactly. we don't. From a language opposite, perspective. From a language perspective, from a cultural perspective, we go out of our way to protect them and uh, and save them. You know, go back to Quebec and there's a, there's a cultural thing, right? Like we, you know, you think about uh, Quebec as, as a distinct culture um, and so, you know, sort of built from a French culture from France. And uh, they have a distinct attitude of sort of busybodiness of getting in each other's business. And it's sort of a cultural thing. That's just the way they are. That lends itself to an idea of a homogenous society where everyone's the same or should be the same. Um, but then they also have uh, this idea that uh, the state then gets into people's business because the state is part of the people, the people, you know, so they're in, in each other's face. And... They believe that they're infallible. Then they start with that premise. And so because they're infallible, they get to the point where, well, you know, when, when you talk about Legault in the book and, and, you know, refusing to admit that systemic exists because the people of Quebec would be at fault. And you ask, you know, which people is he talking about? Exactly. He's basically talking about all of them. Exactly. It's like if it's Quebec like is he, infallible he, and systemic racism exists, then the people are at fault, then Quebec isn't infallible. <laughs> and so they're in a sort of a, what is it, the Propter Hawk uh, fallacy, uh, you know, uh, that if this follows that, it's because of it. And, uh, you know, so there's sort of that logic. And that's where they're from, it, which makes no sense. It makes, it makes no sense. And, and one of the things that, that really troubles me is when I hear, you know, this is uh, uh, offensive to the people of Quebec. Well, that assumes that Quebec is a monolithic people. And so, of course, if you're a black person and you take offense to the fact that the government of Quebec doesn't want to recognize systemic racism and you know, then is that government speaking for you? Well, of course not, right? If you are English-speaking Canadian living in the province Quebec and discriminatory uh, linguistic laws continue to be passed that start limiting even more so your rights and disadvantage you, then when the premier of Quebec says, you know, uh, the people of Quebec, this is what they want, he's obviously not speaking about you. Those rights. Yeah. I'd like to right, say that the uh, day, so. everyone has a right to their own stupidity and everyone else has a right to be protected from it. And what you're basically saying is you can't start defining who everyone is. Uh, you give as much as you get. And uh, so the rights go both ways. And Quebec seems to not do that. Well said. So we've had this global reckoning, Gregory. You know, we've had, we've raised the awareness. We can see both sides of the border in the U.S. and, and Canada that we've seen some government action to try to change the systems. We've seen some, some reforming policing. We've seen some equity measures and investment in black communities and in communities of color. Uh, here in Canada, we've seen some steps towards righting some of the wrongs for, uh, that were made to indigenous people. And of course, we know there's much, much work. So where do you feel we're at? And what do you think's next from your perspective? Uh, I think we, you know, still have an opportunity for it to all get better. Uh, personal level, more and more people are doing it. They're taking time to assess and recognize when systemic inequalities exist and whether they can see the advantage they get as long as you can start to see the disadvantage that somebody else has and recognize that you don't have that disadvantage. Uh, you can start taking stock and, and start trying to do something about it. And give some time and space when you're having conversations with people to understand. And, uh, you know, if we need to uh, all speak respectfully and respectfully listen. Uh, anything that comes across as confrontational will fail. 
Um, some of the terminology that comes out of universities is very unfortunate. You know, they get caught in their bubble of so proud of coining a term that is used to only stay inside the university, the academic bubble, but now is coming out into the mainstream. And unfortunately, it's not the right word and right terminology for the mainstream without the full explanation of it. And so those are challenges. But so everybody step back and take time to, to listen uh, and understand where people are coming from, what they're really saying. Gregory. I know we could go on. This has been amazing. Uh, I want to thank you for your time and for your contributions. Uh, and again, thank you for also for all your support with the book. And you were a great help, a great advisor for me. So I want to thank you. And uh, shout out to the Democracy House people. Uh, shout out to uh, your mother, Adrian McDonald, Howard Brown. Hi, mommy. <laughs> and uh, I look forward to the next conversation, Gregory. Thanks so much. Thanks, Stephen. And thanks again for uh, sharing your personal story uh, in the context of all these issues in Canada. I think it's uh, delightful and an important read for a lot of people. So uh, if you haven't yet, go borrow it from a friend. I mean, I mean, go buy it. <laughs> thanks for listening to Black and White. If you've enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give our show a great rating. In my book, Black and White, an intimate multicultural take on white advantage and the path to change, launched in Canada and in the United States. So please pick up a copy, Indigo, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Black and White is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to our engineer, Ian Douglas, producer and sound designer extraordinaire, Noah Fouts, and executive producers, Gerardo Orlando and David Allen Moss. I'm Stephen Dorsey, your host, reminding all of us that we can be better, do better, and if we do that, live better together. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.